So that's a very full passage that Lacey's just read to us. Um, this is the final session we're going to have on Galatians, number six. It probably feels like it's sort of been 60 rather than six. It certainly has to me. Um, our next gathering is going to be an opportunity for us to discuss what this sort of incredible epistle and some of the ideas that have emerged from it actually mean for us in our setting. So far, we've seen how Paul has mounted this kind of relentless polemic against the idea of Gentile believers being obligated to circumcision and obedience to the Torah as a necessary part of their commitment to Christ. That's the the, the view that's been presented to them by visiting uh, believers from Jerusalem, and Paul is pushing back really strongly against this idea that they must be circumcised, they must commit to obedience of the Torah if they really are to belong to Christ. He has insisted that God's grace in Christ brings radical freedom from the law. And any attempt to smuggle the law back into the picture uh, effectively cancels out Christ. There's no two ways about this. So beginning of chapter 5, he writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the entire law. You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen from grace. So there's no middle ground on this issue as far as Paul is concerned. Now, in the final section of the letter, uh, chapter 5 through to the end of chapter 6, Paul describes what way of life and what characteristic ethos uh, Christian communities freed from the law ought to have. How does the community look like if it's not to go down the path of um, obligation to the law? Uh, one commentator who's got a very fat, very long commentary, uh, very significant commenta- uh, commentary, uh, entitles this part of the letter as Daily Life in a Church in a Time of War. Daily Life in a Church in a Time of War. So it addresses day-to-day real-life conflicts and relational disputes. It doesn't simply give a set of abstract ethical principles. Now, this is often called the ethical part of the letter, uh, but it's not just a set of, of ethical uh, obligations. He's talking about real flesh and blood uh, conflict in real people's lives. He's also focusing on the nature of the community. He's not just listing a set of individual vices and virtues, although that's how we tend to read it, that he's talking about the kind of ways that individuals um, should order their lives. He's talking about how the community as a whole instantiates or actualizes the deliverance that Christ has brought, how they actually put it into practice in the hurly-burly of everyday life. And it's about Christian life in a time of war, uh, which is a very striking way to, to put it, a time of war because the passage portrays this implacable conflict between two opposing powers, which he calls the flesh and the spirit. These terms do not 
describe and not intended to describe as far as um, the experts tell us, uh, an internal struggle that takes place in our own lives between our kind of, you know, a higher nature and our lower nature, our sort of rational nature and our animal nature, or between our best intentions and the continuing drives towards sin. It's, it's rather than that, he's talking about two sort of superhuman cosmic powers who are locked in a deadly struggle for the control of humanity and for the control of God's good creation. These two cosmic uh, systemic powers. One he calls the flesh, which refers to rebellious, a rebellious sinful power that holds fallen human nature in its, in its sway and propagates all manner of selfish, disordered and destructive behaviours. So he writes in, in the text we just, we just heard, For the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what those works of the flesh have in common is that they destroy or corrupt human relationships, and therefore they wreck healthy community. So this power is sowing these kinds of destructive behaviours uh, into the human experience. And opposing the power of the flesh is the power of the spirit. And the spirit here is clearly the spirit of God, sent into the world to activate or to operationalize, if you like, Christ's conquest of sin uh, through his, his death and resurrection, to actualize or operationalize that within the community of faith. So to carry the metaphor on, the decisive battle has been won on the cross. The grip of sin has been broken. The new creation has begun. Freedom from the rulers of this present evil age, to use the phrase from the very first uh, couple of sentences of the epistle, freedom from the rulers of this present age has been secured. But the war is not yet over. The flesh continues to oppose God's redemptive initiative in the world so that Christian existence is lived out in the midst of this ongoing warfare between these two powers. So it's, it's almost as though the church is portrayed as a kind of colony of freed slaves that is under constant harassment from the masters, from the old masters of sin, death, law and the flesh. Freedom has been secured, but I, I guess, again, to continue the metaphor, the counterattack is going on. And so Paul says, For freedom, Christ has set us free, stand therefore firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Do not be drawn back uh, into servitude again. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an operation, uh, as an uh, opportunity for the flesh. So in this kind of combative, hostile environment between these two clashing powers that are still struggling to, um, you know, to, to gain control or exercise control over the human uh, community and God's people as well, 
In the midst of that combative, hostile environment, Paul's essential argument, which I, I guess is really clear to us by now, is the essential argument is, in that environment, relying on human law-keeping to operationalize Christ's victory over evil, to rely on human law-keeping to make it work in practice, is not just a minor theological misstep. You know, it's not just sort of added insurance cover just in case. Rather, for Paul, it is a disastrous error of judgment. It's disastrous both because the law, we talked about this last time, is totally powerless to overcome the flesh, but also because the flesh uses the law to consolidate its grip on humanity. The only power that is capable of defeating the power of the flesh, the only power that is capable of withstanding the counterattacks on the community of the freed, is the Spirit of God. That's the only available option that's going to make any difference. So Paul says, live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. These are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. So this raises three, at least it raised for me, uh, three key questions. And these are really small questions. <laughs> um, but three key questions to consider. And I want to have a go at least in trying to make sense of them. I had to do this for myself, so see what you think. The first question is, how does the law, or how does reliance on a law-based piety, a kind of rule-based piety in general, how does it enslave? How does it work? Secondly, what does freedom from the law actually mean in practice? And thirdly, what role does the Spirit have in activating the freedom that Christ has achieved? So they're really easy questions to answer. Um, <clears throat> and 2,000 years of scholarship on Galatians is still not agreed on the answers, but here's what, here's what I want to uh, suggest. By the beginning of Galatians 5, which is where we're at, Paul has described the law as an enslaving power no fewer than 25 times. So this is not a minor theme. He's deadly serious about his analysis. But question, how does reliance on law-keeping enslave? How is this servitude or this captivity that Paul's talking about, how is it evident in daily experience? Where do we see the evidence of this kind of servitude? What, what are the symptoms that lead Paul to describe obedience to the law or a commitment to the law for this, this way of making uh, Christian faith work. Uh, what are the symptoms of servitude that he is talking about? Well, strictly speaking, it is sin that enslaves through the law. 
It is sin that is the power of enslavement operating through the law. And Paul explains this most vividly in Romans 7, which is kind of surprising to me how much I've gone back to Romans 7 to try and unpack what he's, what he's talking about here, um, because that's a very vivid, vivid chapter in Romans. So Paul says, For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. So the enslaving power is the power of sin with a capital S. And the law is a mechanism that it uses to exert its power over the law-keeping community. So for Paul, from this text, the very idea that strict conformity to an external law code is enough to defeat the indwelling power of sin and the devastation of sin in our experience, the very idea that we could achieve that through conformity to the law is... A delusion. It's a deception. It's misinformation of the ultimate degree. It's one that creates this vicious cycle of dependence on something that actually doesn't work. And in certain respects, like all kinds of cycles of dependence on, on something, it ends up making things worse, Paul even suggests. And it seems that Paul came to this conclusion largely from personal experience, as well as from his observation of uh, the law-keeping community that he was part of. And he knew from both personal experience and from observation how the servitude to the law or the enslavement of sin through the law manifests itself in daily life. So for, for, for many, like himself, as a really devoted Pharisee, for the spiritually sincere, it manifests itself in a sense of moral frustration and even a sense of shame that I can't live up to the standards that the law calls me to. And again, from Paul, he, he only knew this in retrospect. When he experienced Christ, he looked back on his earlier experience he saw things differently than he did at the time. But looking back on his experience of living under the law, he recognised this kind of frustration that he struggled against, of striving to find, I guess, a kind of perfection, but constantly being tripped up. And it's interesting in Romans 7 again, the thing that trips him up is the problem of desire, of covetousness. Now, the law can control external behaviours, but... What Paul uses as an example of this frustration is, is the desires within him that weren't really touched by the law. So he says in Romans 7, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For what I do, for, for I do not what... This is already very hard to get this right. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. 
I can will to do what is right, but I cannot do it. I delight in the law in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But he, he throws in this kind of disinfectant statement. He does a couple of times where he says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ the Lord. Then he goes back, so then, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I am a slave to the law of sin. So that sense of frustration and of a sense of more than failure, a sense of almost shame that he is not able to achieve what the law calls him to is one way I think that the the enslavement of the law expresses itself. In other case, other cases, uh, the law feeds false pride and a sense of superiority towards others, which in a competitive honor-based society, such as was universally the case in the first century, including within the Jewish community, in an honor-based society, the, the desire for pride and superiority was actually highly esteemed. This was the most important thing in life. So I came across uh, in a book uh, a re- reference to a, a comment by uh, Cicero, the Roman philosopher in the first century, uh, first century BC, who captures this pervasive ethos throughout the ancient world around honour. He writes, By nature, we yearn and hunger for honour. So honour there is status, it's reputation, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's being valued for being important. We yearn and hunger for honour, and once we have glimpsed, as it were, some part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and to suffer in order to secure it. Honour was everything in an honour-based society. And do you remember how last time I quoted from Philippians 3, where Paul enumerates his own claims to honour, to the superior Jewish pedigree uh, and status that the law afforded him. He lists them out, you know, Hebrew, born of Hebrews, um, uh, Pharisee, uh, as to the law blames, he lists them all down. And then he dismisses them as crap, as excrement. These badges of honour, which he once esteemed, which others esteemed, he dismissed them as totally worthless. Why? Because he had come to see them as works of the flesh, opposed to God's spirit. The quest for recognition and status in the eyes of others feeds self-centeredness and self-importance, which invariably, invariably generates envy and conflict and competition in the community. So the quest for honour creates, I mean, there's anthropologists who write about this sort of stuff, talk about being an agonistic society. One's always, there's always conflict going on. People trying to, you know, get one over over others and sort of increase their own honour so that they, they would be uh, esteemed more highly than the other. And so what you gain, somebody else lost. And Paul came to regard this as a sign of the power of the flesh that is opposed to the work of the Spirit. So he says in our text to the Galatians, he says, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love 
become slaves to one another. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. Instead, bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfil the law of Christ. For if those who are nothing think they are something, they deceive themselves. All must test their own work. Then that work, rather than the neighbour's work, rather rather than being greater than your neighbour, will become a cause for pride. So as well as frustration for those who are really sincere and pride and arrogance for others, Paul also saw how a law-based piety can mask outright hypocrisy. And I think if there's anything from the teaching of Jesus that I think is really clear is Jesus detested hypocrisy. And in Romans 2, when Paul turns this withering attack um, on the Roman congregation who was locked into conflict, he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely upon the law and boast in your relation to God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I think you have to hasten to make the point, this is not unique to the Jews. I mean, this feeds all kinds of stereotypes uh, that we've got to be really alert to. I think hypocrisy in this sense is a besetting tendency in all religious communities that make conformity to some external code of belief and practice the central basis of their belief and and, um, and attitude towards others. (coughs) So what I'm suggesting then is that reliance on law-keeping, the way it generates frustration and failure, pride and envy, conflict and hypocrisy, only shows how impotent law-keeping is to free human nature from servitude to sin and how captive those who think that it does free them, how captive they really are. But, as Paul exalts at the end of Romans 7, he can't stop himself, even in the midst of this terrible analysis, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The only sufficient agent for liberation 
Paul is so clear about is Christ's redemptive work on the cross and the gift of his spirit to activate this victory in the lives of those who simply trust in him, who have faith in him. Question two, what then does freedom actually mean in practice? So Paul asserts that they have been freed, they must protect their freedom at all costs. Sounds like the US Constitution, doesn't it? But what, what does freedom actually mean in this context? <laughs> we use the notion of freedom or liberty, it seems to me, in two main ways when you talk of freedom. We either describe, I use it to describe freedom from some source of oppression or some servitude or some restraint, something that is restricting or confining us. Freedom from that. Uh, the philosophers would call that negative freedom. You're freeing from something that's holding you back. Or we use the idea of freedom as the opportunity for some new goals or experiences or aspirations in the future. Freedom to become or to do something different. And you call that positive freedom. I think both dimensions of freedom apply to the freedom from the law that Paul is talking about here. So what does it mean to be freed from the law? Well, on the one hand, it means to be freed from the curse or the condemnation of the law, from the curse that the law carries or pronounces on those who fail to meet its requirements. So, excuse me, from uh, Galatians 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not observe or and obey all the things written in the book of the law. But Christ, he says, has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Or Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So it means, in part, it means freedom from condemnation. It also means freedom from direct accountability to the written law. <coughs> so the law, the, the, the Torah, the, the, the law of Moses, no longer serves as the definitive transcript of God's will for the Christian community. That role is taken over by Christ himself. It is his teaching. It is his example. It is his indwelling presence that now mediates God's will to his people. So it's not the law. I often use the image in class when I talk about this. It's like a stage where for two or three acts in the drama, the law is the sort of the chief character and then the real protagonist comes onto the stage and the, 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 what you thought was the chief character you know, moves back into the background. And you realise that this, this drama is actually about this other person who's appeared on the, on the stage. 
And so that that's one way of thinking about it, that the law is kind of driven into the, into the, into the, the wings so that people now, the, the people of God now look at Christ as the supreme um, mediator example of what God wants uh, from his followers. So Paul speaks, and I, I was trying to think of the right adverb here. I've got the word teasingly here. Um, uh, ironically, I'm not quite sure what the, quite the word is, but he speaks of the law of Christ. You know, the law of Christ, the law of faith. And in Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, he speaks about being in lord to Christ, you know, being bound to Christ by, by law, by the law of Christ. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what he earlier describes in really vivid language. Freedom from the ministry of death chiseled in letters on stone tablets. It's like out of, out of I don't know. <clears throat> where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom from uh, the, 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 this written law which he has experienced as being a kind of ministry of death. So it's freedom from direct accountability to the written law. On the other hand, as well as being freedom from, freedom in Christ is freedom for. is freedom for a new way of living, freed from the control or the drives of the flesh that paradoxically achieves the true purpose of the law. So you're freed from the law in order to achieve what the law is driving at. And what is the law driving at? What's reaching out? What is, what is the intentionality behind the giving of the law? Paul is really clear. It's love. That's what it's about. It's love. For uh, Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Faith energized through love. Or in our text, you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And once again, in Romans, Paul makes the same point, just more fully, more round, but it's exactly the same point. Romans 13, he says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves their neighbor has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this sentence, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul seems to distinguish between keeping the law in terms of following its detailed stipulations meticulously and fulfilling the law, which is about achieving its true purpose and intention. And that purpose, that intention, that drive that the law was reaching forward for is a life controlled by love, a life controlled by service to others, exemplified supremely in Jesus himself, who, as Paul says in that 
such moving sentence in Galatians 2, who loved me and gave himself for me. I just, I mean, I just really find that so moving, that, that statement, who loved me and gave himself for me. Which means that freedom from the law is not freedom from all obligations or constraints. Rather, it is freedom to become obedient to the law of love or the law of Christ. Through love, become slaves to one another. Verse 13, through love, become slaves to one another. This remarkable injunction, through love, become slaves to one another, seems to me kind of typifies Paul's approach for how to go about creating sort of countercultural communities of freedom and love in the midst of this present evil age. And that seems to me what, what, what's going on in these, these uh, churches that have been, he's been founding, these, these communities of, of, of resistance to, the, to this uh, context of oppression. How, how do you go about doing it? He takes, in this case, the hierarchical relationship of slavery and instead of trying to abolish it, which of course would have been totally impossible and probably inconceivable, instead of that, he subverts it. He subverts the relationship by making the relationship reciprocal, be slaves to one another. He converts the top-down relationship of power over into a horizontal relationship of mutual care and submission to each other, where each side promotes the interests of the other. And of course, when you do that, you don't have slavery anymore. For it is by bearing one another's burdens, he says, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens. Which then brings me to our third key question about the role of the Spirit in this new community that Paul is addressing. You may remember... uh, this being said in an earlier session, but I think one of the reasons why Paul's conservative Christian opponents were so insistent that Gentiles needed to be circumcised and needed to keep the law, one of the reasons at least was a fear that they would import pagan immorality and idolatry uh, and licentiousness into the Messianic community. They bring all their garbage with them uh, into you know God's distinct people without the guardrails of the of the law they wouldn't be able to resist their kind of pagan impulses and they wouldn't be able to achieve the kind of holiness that God requires of his people so the idea of dispensing with the law as Paul seems to be arguing is to invite moral and religious mayhem. You know, take away all the, 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 the boundaries, all the rules, and you know what you're going to end up with. So pretty, I think it's a pretty, pretty strong argument um, to use. But Paul, you know, bless his radical socks, I mean, he rejects that charge. He rejects the charge that he's opening the floodgates for, um, for selfishness and for 
licentiousness because dispensing with the law does not leave a vacuum that's simply waiting to be fulfilled by selfish individualism. You know, it's not driving the law off the stage and then having nothing there to replace it. On the contrary, it is filled with the presence of the crucified and risen Christ and by the power and guidance of his spirit who impart this new obligation to love and to service and to true holiness. So he says, if you're led by the spirit, you're not subject to the law, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. So the vacuum's not filled with people's basest instincts. It's fulfilled by this presence and power that calls people to a more I've used the word radical, a more um, energetic commitment to the way of love. You've, you've probably noticed this, and preachers always pointed out that the contrast between the works of the flesh, uh, works of the flesh, which are all about striving for dominance and for honour and for control, with the fruit of the Spirit, which is all about a continual growing in grace. Of course, this process of growth in grace uh, still requires hard work and it still requires dedication. Our passage is full of imperatives. There's lots of things that the readers are told to do and not to do. But the effort that they are expending is aimed at holding firmly to the new reality that Christ has drawn them into, holding on to what they've already received and resisting the encroachment of the flesh is pushing back to so destructive and self-centered behavior. And the effort is, as well as that, directed at allowing the spirit to cultivate Christ-like qualities in their lives. Individually, yes, but I think primarily community, uh, collectively. Because I think individual Let's use old-fashioned language. Individual sanctification, individual growth and holiness is actually the product of belonging to a community that grows uh, in that direction. And I think we see in each other stuff we can't see in ourselves. And we, we, we contribute to the growth of each other in a way that we're often not, uh, not aware of. And I was thinking, actually, after we're debriefing after the, um, the soiree on... Said our uh, Friday night, I said, following morning, we're having a coffee. I said, you know, it was to me an example of a spirit filled community. It had all the marks of a community filled with God's spirit. There was gentleness, there was love, there was joy, there was patience. There was no rivalry, there was no striving to dominance. There was listening, there was, you know, it just to me, this was what a spirit filled community actually looks like. 
And that's the fruit of the Spirit, allowing the Spirit in our midst to cultivate the ways and character of Christ. So of all the imperatives that are scattered through our passage, it seems to me the fundamental ones are to live by the Spirit and to be guided by the Spirit. The Spirit who points us to Jesus, who unites us with Christ and to his way of love of joy, of peace, of kindness, of generosity, of faithfulness, of gentleness, and of self-control. And again, in many ways, what Paul is arguing here can be summed up from a verse in Romans 7 again. (laughs) And this verse, it just seems to me, says it all. He says, while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work were at work in our members to bear fruit of death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we may serve, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. seems to me that's exactly what he's saying in Galatians 5 as well. Discharged in order to serve, not accountable to an old written code, but accountable to the new life of the Spirit in our midst. Let me conclude with just one final observation. Perhaps the litmus test for what it means to live in the new life of the Spirit in a community is the way that we deal with failure in our midst. Because often when one fails the law and grace kind of push us in different directions. You know, accountability to do expectations pulls us in one way and this sort of desire to be nice (laughs) or or graceful pulls us in the other way. I often use, when I am speaking to Christians about restorative justice, I often use Galatians 6.1, which is at the very end of our text tonight, um, as the kind of the verse, the verse that crystallizes the restorative character of God's justice at work in the community. And the reason why I extended Galatians 5 into Galatians 6 is so I could, I could um, end on this note. Because, <laughs> because I, 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 I've seen it in an in a even deeper way than I've seen it before. I've looked at this verse, I've sort of pulled it apart as I'm going to do in a minute. And it makes sense. But when I see it in light of what's come before it, the stuff I've just been talking about, it makes even more sense to me. So Paul says, brothers and sisters, or friends, it's in the translation, brothers and sisters, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. If you detect anybody in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. So the the first reaction within a community of the Spirit to failure is not to chastise or to condemn, but to restore. To restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. And 
the, the, the sentence that follows, I think, captures uh, four crucial requirements for a community or a church such as us uh, functioning as a restorative community. This one verse, it seems to me, brings together four crucial uh, requirements for a community striving to be a restorative community. First of all is a commitment to discipline and accountability that takes transgression seriously. It says, if anyone is detected in a transgression, it does not ignore the wrong, it does not ignore the harm, it recognises it, it names it, and it addresses it. So there's, a, again, an underlying commitment to accountability and discipline. The second is a reliance on the spirit to empower a response that seeks to mend and to heal, not to punish and to exclude. You who have received the spirit, he's talking to these people. So it's not naive about the costliness of restoration because it's always costly to restore or to be involved in a restorative process. God's grace, God's power, God's spirit is needed in order to achieve the kind of reconciliation that uh, we strive for. The third requirement is a dedication to practising what you could call a gentle justice. Dealing with those who are caught up in the harm or the wrongdoing in a spirit of gentleness. It reminds me of the text in Matthew where Matthew talks about Jesus and quotes a text from Isaiah 42 you know, about not breaking the bruised reed or snuffing out the, the, um, the flickering candle until he has brought justice to, to, to birth. A gentle justice. He doesn't raise his voice. He's not heard in the streets. He's not protesting. He's not making a loud noise. But he's, he's working gently towards, uh, towards uh, healing and, and restoration. A gentle justice. And the fourth requirement is a genuine humility. A genuine humility, again, the opposite of an honour-based system that recognises our common human weakness and our common susceptibility to temptation. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted in this process. Uh, either tempted to replicate the kind of sin that you're trying to address or perhaps also tempted towards hypocrisy and judgmentalism and pride and frustration uh, and all those other things we talked about earlier on. Commitment to discipline and accountability, a reliance on the spirit, a dedication to a justice of gentleness and a genuine humility, which means that a community of faith such as ours, freed from the rule of the law, obligated to love and to service, and open to the new life of the Spirit, such a community will always be a restorative community.